This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Roberto de Vicdecumtish about the difference between art and design, his love for serif fonts, and the importance of wit in design. Life is hard. Like, let's give a break to the general public. Like, to make life a little easier, a little you know, gentler and happier by just this little witty thing that you can create. Here's Debbie Miller. The lettering of Roberto de Vic de Comtish stands out like a good dancer on a crowded dance floor. It swoops and swishes and always impresses. No matter how tiny, each O and S and F is alive in its own gesture. Devic began his career designing witty and ingenious book covers for publishing houses. In 2000, he published his own book, an animal abecedary called Bembo's Zoo, from antelope to zebra, and yes, there was a unicorn. Devic shaped each animal out of the graceful Roman letters in its own name, a typographical tour de force. He's come out with two more books since then, each devoted in its own way to type. These days, DeVic is the principal at DeVic Design. They do publication and restaurant design and branding with a focus, of course, on typography. Roberto DeVic de Comtesh, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. So the first question I want to ask you about is your name. <laughs> Roberto DeVic de Comtesh, how did you get that name? <laughs> well, the first part is Brazilian. I was born in Rio. The last name is actually is a Flemish name. Vic in Old Flemish means village, and Kamptish is a place that still exists. It's only one street in the middle of Belgium. And so my great-grandfather moved from Belgium to Boston, then from Boston to Brazil, and then my grandfather was born in Boston, My and then moved to Brazil, and then my father was born in Brazil, and I was born in Brazil. It's daunting, <laughs> but it's quite beautiful. It's actually a really poetic name. <laughs> Do you find that most people don't know how to pronounce it? I think that probably at the end of my life, I would spend three years of you know, spelling on the phone. Oh, yeah. So, All that time. Yeah. But besides that, you know, I mean, it's great. It's much easier to search you know, when you have a name like that. That's of, true. If you put Roberto and a D-E in Google, it oh, comes out right exactly, away. Exactly, yeah. So you were born in Brazil, in Rio. Yeah. And you moved to New York City in 1982 yeah. when you received a painting scholarship to go to Pratt. What made you decide that you wanted to move to New York City? At that time, when I was growing up in Brazil, was a dictatorship, and there was like a lower middle class. The economy was not doing very well. There was hyperinflation. I don't know if you ever experienced hyperinflation. It's like, for instance, you go to the supermarket, and there was no prices on the packages. So the, you have to bring the package to the cash register, and when you present the product, that would give you a price. If you presented 10 minutes later, the price would change. So it was like a business, business our situation. So we decided, like, no, Rio is a lovely place to visit. I don't know if I've ever been to I Rio. I have not, I'm sad to say. It's beautiful. But it's very difficult to work. So I decided, like, you know, I had not that many contacts. I was, like, you know, was, well, let's see how it is to live abroad, how it's, like, you know, to be a foreigner. I had a BA in graphic design, but uh, the graphic design school that I went in Brazil was very 
uh, Bauhaus was very like you know uh, the idea of modern. So the designer would have a voice. It was mostly like you know that you have like only five or four typefaces for you to use. Ah, so very vignelli. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so it was very boring. So I decided like you know instead of continued you know doing graphic design, I decided like let's do a master in painting, and I got a scholarship to do this. I came here. I love New York, and then I discovered graphic design that I love. I, lo- I discovered Louis Philly. I discovered like you know, so it's you'd start like you know, salivating when you see the thing. So I want like you know, to do like that. So then I went back to graphic design. What was the art and design scene in Brazil like in the early 1980s? Was uh, there a scene at all? Not that much, actually. From all the people that I graduated, I think there are very few people who are still into design business. Nowadays, you have a design because economy. I mean, design needs an economy. So, like, you know, since there was no economy at that time, it was very difficult for you to survive as a designer. Uh, nowadays, there is, and actually, there's a very interesting typographer's you know, designing type in Brazil as well. So, there is some interesting things. On the other hand, Brazil is kind of uh, a young country, and a lot of the design sensibility of Brazil is very much the modern. It's like you know, Nehemiah when he created Brasilia. So it was, I mean, when you go to Brazil, one of the funny things that I, I find is that they don't have serif typefaces. Everything is sans serif because there is this idea of the modern. You find serif on like on small type, on, on the known books, but like you know, any display type is also sans serif. It's so bizarre. There was no idea of tradition, of uh, lettering. I mean, the lettering that there is is like you know, the raw uh, signs that is done for market. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting place to visit and see it. So you ended up getting a master's in painting. Because I love art. I, love, I mean, the thing is, if you grew up in Brazil, there was no, I mean, in Rio, you have one museum of modern art. You have no Rembrandt. You have no El Greco's. You have no Rubens. So like you know, everything, all your art history is based on books. It's just like you never see any painting. So like, and of course, like, I want to see, I want to, and then when I came here, I saw it and I appreciated. But the thing with art is that uh, I like design because design is, is you have a problem and you have a solution. And you have zillions of solutions. And you have a problem that existed outside yourself. Art is different. Art, you have to pose the problem. If you find a solution or not, it depends on you, depends on like on uh, on. Um, you have to be cursed to be an artist, you know? <laughs> and I think design... You don't think you have to be cursed to be a designer? A little bit, but not so much. I mean, the gods are a little more, um, you know, relaxed and less vengeful than, like, you know, with arts. I'm not surprised that just moments into our interview, we're already talking about your thoughts and philosophy on the role of art and the role of design. You've talked about it extensively, and it was hard to pick the bits that I wanted to quote back to you and then talk about, aside from the fact that on your website, you prominently state graphic design will save you. And I want to talk about how you believe that's possible. But I also wanted to talk to you about this sort of dichotomy between art and design. And so I'm going to read you this paragraph. You say, design is not art, since art exists as an answer to a question posed by an individual artist, while design exists as an answer to a question posed by the marketplace. Design must have an audience to come into being, while art seeks an audience, sometimes luckily finding it, sometimes not. Art pushes the limit of experience and language for its own sake, while design might do this, but only to humanize and integrate people's lives in the context of an economy. 
Design needs an economic system, while art does not. Art may become a product, but it's not the reason why it was created, but how our society transforms it into a commodity. Sounds so much better when you say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just reading your words. It's really quite extraordinary to think about a product or art becoming a product and then becoming a commodity. And I'm wondering if if you have an example. I was thinking maybe Warhol. I was thinking, who do you mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? I think the whole, I mean, our idea of art, of the artist, is like, you know, the French bohemian, like, you know, living on on the little uh, attic in, you know, in Paris and, like, you know, painting his, you know, his room. See, I think of Damien Hirst. I don't yeah. really think about that parade <laughs> artist anymore. Well, but I think this, I think of a cash register. Well, I think, but this was, like, you know, the ideal, the image that I have of, but an artist should be. I mean, you shouldn't like. You know, I understand. You yes. shouldn't uh, compromise your art. And then, you know, when you go and try, like, you know, to do this, I mean, you have, you have to have a, a nine to five job, and then, like, you know, you go home at night, and like, you know, you work from six to two o'clock in the morning, and then, and you have to have a real, not only a, a passion, but you have a, a need to do that. Like, there is, is something that is pressing on you because it is a very difficult life, of course. As a designer, we're doing exactly the same thing. We work nine to five and then we realize that like, no, we hate, not every, everyone, but sometimes you hate the things <laughs> that you do from nine to five. So you have to go home and like, you know, do the things that you want to the do for yourself. The self-generated projects, yes. yeah. But it is something that like, you, know, you see as a, you're creating a project that there is a, a marketplace like, to absorb this project. What with our artists, it is, yeah, I mean, you, know, you are making a product, but that product might... You know, you have might a gallery like to show it. You don't know. I mean, like, you know, the genesis for an idea of art, it is something that is specifically in you. Like, you know, is a uh, interest, is an obsession that you have. Of course, you know, designers are obsessed as well. I don't know. I mean, there are similarities, but there are, you know, a lot of things that are very different. This reminds me of a passage in James Joyce's Ulysses where there's a big sort of existential debate that Joyce has the character sort of thinking about this and that and this and that and sort of spinning around and around and around and big, big, big ideas. And then he starts a new paragraph. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) how can graphic design save us? Well, it saves me. And it can save everyone, but it saves me. I love craft design. I think that I'm very lucky. I probably feel the same way, you know, that uh, you find something that you like to do. And one of the things about, like, you know, work that is great is the idea of losing yourself into the work. So in a sense, it's like you know, something you have joy, like, you know, to play with type, to play with images, like, you know, to find similarities, to find patterns, to create, you know, ideas, to um, transform. So you lose yourself into, you know, into the work. And that's when I, one of the things that I say to my daughter is trying to find something that you're so passionate that you lose yourself in it. And I think that's what the graphic design does for me. So there's a little bit of lost time that I've discovered in my research from the time that you graduated with your master's till the time you became the senior art director and vice president at HarperCollins. So what did you do in between? Because I really couldn't find what it was you were doing. Well, that's the thing. You know, when I graduated from fine arts, so I had like, when I came to New York, I had no portfolio. And then you are competing with people who come like, you know, with wonderful American universities with perfect portfolio. I my hated portfo- those people. 
<laughs> I mean, also, you know, it was some time ago. So in a sense, like when I came, my portfolio was still in like litter set with like rub down. Me I mean, too. it's like, remember how, oh, how it was? Fantastic. And, and then when you put the plastic sheet, like, and you peel half of the things would come out. I mean, <laughs> like it was a monotype. <laughs> It was, it was a disaster. It was, um, so I wanted to go in graphic design. And it was very difficult to try. So I did everything. I did, like, you know, I work um, designing banks in the Bahamas, you know, those, like, you know, annual reports for, like, you know, these strange banks in the Bahamas. <laughs> I was art director for a magazine called Your Prom. I mean, it was lovely. At one point, we were doing a photo shoot of all these girls in prom dresses. And the, you know, the photographer told me, because I was putting one uh, model near like in the light, and says, don't close, not so close to the light. The dress is plastic. It's going to <laughs> go in flames. So, I mean, I did everything that you could in order like, to build a portfolio. So that was a kind of struggle. But it was a way of... Um, Finding and that's the thing with graph design. I mean, you grow in terms of you know the quality of your work, but you also try like to find you know the enlightened client, the enlightened tyrant. So in a sense, that's the pursuit of graph design is to find like someone who believes in you, who believes in your sensibility, but also has the money to you know to back you up and, and the, the courage. courage. Yeah. yeah. But I still don't understand how you went from freelancing and working on prom catalogs <laughs> Magazines. And, and, and dubious bank annuals <laughs> to vice president at well, HarperCollins and Random House. I did a lot of um, you know, working in you know, branding. At that time, it was not even branding. It was corporate identity. Uh, and then suddenly, I was doing a lot of freelance magazines. And then I got hired by Condé Nast. First, I was designer at Vogue when Anna Wintour was coming in. And then after Vogue, I went to Housing Garden, and from Housing Garden, I went to Condé Nast Traveler. And then I was senior designer at Condé Nast, and I realized the only great position in Condé Nast if you, if you are the art director. Because a designer, you already have all the typefaces chosen for you. You have all the images chosen for you. It was just layout in the pages. And it was kind of interesting, but like at the end, it was not, you know, I mean, also the thing is that the magazines have such a short life that when you see it, it looks, it's already garbage before it's out. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, you already, um, so I was by myself, you know, not very happy in New York. And I thought, like, you know, perhaps I should go to Europe, like, should see what it is to go to live, you know, in France. So I was... Uh, Brushing up my French and uh, at Alliance Francaise, and there was this uh, woman who was heavily pregnant, was one another, another student in the class. And we start talking, and she was looking for, you know, to have a designer to replace her as an art director for Pantheon. It was Marjorie Anderson, who came after Louise Philly. And then so I stayed at Pantheon for four months. And I discovered that I love books. I mean, like the first book that they gave me to do was uh, Il Gato Pardo, The Leopard by Lampedusa. And I'm, oh my God, this is what I want to do. I mean, I love books. And so it was wonderful, like, you know, to design books. And also, like, you know, books are little posters. And each one is different. And each one you have to market different. And each one is a, is a different voice. So it was, I really loved, you know, so... From Pantheon, then I I start freelancing mostly in book publishing, and then like you now I start like you now working. First, I was art director of Basic Books, then I was art director of Broadway Books, and then from Broadway Books I went like into HarperCollins, and then I realized that it's great. I mean, I love the corporate ladder, but at one point you become more manager than you 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 are hired because of your design skills, and then like you know, the last thing that you do is design. You, you know you manage people, so I decided that. The, better like not to do open my own stuff and 
Now, I read that while you were at HarperCollins that you oversaw the design of over 1,500 book covers a year and also actually designed over 200. How is that possible? It's like one a day, one a a business day. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there was a lot of staff there, but also – it is fast. It's not like you. You there is the great books that like they just spend you know, a lot of time trying like them to come up. But there are other things that have to be out of the door, and I think it's good. I mean, it's, time is also essential. You have to manage your time. Um, your ideas have to be when you are taking a shower, not when you're in front of the computer. I mean, that's when you have your ideas. So it was. It's okay. I mean, I actually love you know the the, the fast pace. I think like sometimes when you have too much time, it becomes like too. There's too much to consider. I mean, there's always again design. You don't only have one solution. You have you can have zillions of solutions. So in a sense, you know, time is one of the components that make the, you know, the solution specific for at that point in time. On your website, you have a lot of examples of books that went to market with a cover that you designed, but you also included many times variations that you created that you would have preferred go to market. And one of my favorite examples on your website was for the book How to Cook Like a Man. And you said that the sort of brief in your own mind was me want food, me cook, seems like a natural corollary for the title. And How to Cook Like a Man went to market with kind of what you'd expect cover. And what you actually created that you would have preferred had a very strategically placed whisk and two eggs. And I'll let our listeners decide in their own minds how they want to construct those elements. Why on earth wouldn't they go with something that interesting and witty and humorous and provocative all at the same time? I think it depends. Again, depends on the client, depends on like the project. I think publishing, even though it's not a high-profit margin you know, business, is becoming more and more conservative. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that I think Knopf did so well. I mean, when you have Sonny Mera, one of the, the is like, again, is the enlightened tyrant. He appreciates design. He appreciates... Yeah, no, and Chip, Chip says that very explicitly. Chip Kidd, of course, from uh, Random House, one of the great book cover designers of all time. Chip says very, very is, specifically yeah. that he couldn't do what he was doing if it weren't for Sunny. Exactly. Man. And I think that not enough, you don't have that many in publishing anymore. It's, it's becoming, I think, more and more conservative. You've branched out into both restaurant branding and packaging. And do you find that your approach differs in these disciplines or is it a very similar way in? I think it's very similar. I think one of the things that I like about working in branding or in like the restaurants is that the thing with like when you do a book jacket, you know, you read the book, you come up with a concept and, you know, you flash out the concept and you have the one off. I mean, you have this, you know, this poster and then Imagine if you could adapt this poster now for a menu, now for a postcard, now for... I mean, you adapt that idea for all these different other... You know, and you created like you know, this system. Um, so I think that you know, they can correlate. Because in a sense, you're creating a narrative. So it's like you know, it's a narrative for the book. It's a narrative for you know, the restaurants. It's a narrative for the branding. It's like you know, you're creating a story. So if you have more pieces, that story can be better fleshed out, better displayed. So three different restaurants that you've worked on include Il Pittori in Philadelphia, Mai Tai in Rio, and Cafe Storico in New York City. 
And I just watched a video of you online talking with Matteo Bologna about the design of the Stephen Starr's restaurant park, the French restaurant. And I was really fascinated by the notion of what makes something authentic. And you both questioned how something could be authentic if it wasn't created in its place of origin. So how do you create an authentic environment when, in fact, by the sheer virtue of being a Thai restaurant in Brazil or an Italian restaurant in Philadelphia, you're already somewhat inauthentic by being outside of the country that you are really coming from. I think, for instance, with uh, Il Pittori, the, 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 the food that it was creating was art. It was, like, you know, it was lovely and they are delicious. I mean, they're really, you know, if you go to Philadelphia, go to Il Pittori. It's, they have a, a bombolini that is you know, to die for. So since you have the Disney, you know, the name Il Pittori, so what about if the plates are the canvas, if the menus are the canvas? So in a sense, like, you know, it becomes all about you know, how when you see in restaurant photographs they have like you know, those brush strokes of like balsamic vinegar of mustard. In a sense, it's very much like you know, to be you know, an artist. With Mai Tai, was uh, you know, a friend of mine who they live in New York. I mean, they are Brazilians. They have never been to Thailand, but they love Thai food. You know, all the time they were in, in New York, and they wanted like to do something that was healthy and yet was fast. And uh, so they had not mu that much money. I mean, I love. I mean, I actually love little projects like that when you have no much money, but you can do whatever you want. And so I came up with like you know with this um, ambigram. For a logo, so it was the logo would have to be displayed in every you know, package. So in a sense, let's have a memorable image. And so whatever, do you know what ambigram is? Like yes. Look, like when you have, you, you can read back and forth. Wow. And like in data. So right. Um, the word. Or wow. you could read like and sometimes you, um, you know, have two different uh, words, one back and one forth. It's very much. I, I think it became quite quite famous because of the Dan Brown books. The, you know, the Da Vinci Code yes. or like you know, the Angels and Demons. So, but in again, I, again, you know, restaurants. You have each different restaurant has a story, and you have like to narrate the story and create, you know, translate, you know, the ideas graphically into the package, the signage, you know, the in order to um, convey the narrative that they want. And also, I think I love you know with restaurants. It's almost like you no know, this Disneyfication. I mean, it's like you know, it's a kind of a theme park. So in a sense, like you know, yeah, <laughs> restaurants is theme park. Yeah, Absolutely. Let's go like you know to France, you know, turn of the century, or like you know, or 1920 Italy, or like you know. So it's it's a little bit when you go to restaurants, is you are paying you know for the trip, and I mean. What is authentic? I mean, in a sense, like you know, that uh, when you look to know back, it's uh, you are we are in different time. We still love the same food. We still love like you not know, the frisé or lardon, like the or you know, you, you you love the French food. So it is much nice if you, you know, if you're surrounding by the place where that to you know that food was created for. So in a sense, you have the environment where the food was created for. It is authentic. It's not. But then, in a sense, like, aren't we always recreating? You know, I mean, nothing is authentic. Everything is like, you know, it's, it's a recreation. It's a construct. Yeah, yeah a construct. Yeah. So. Well, you also, you and Matteo also talked about needing to create a level of authenticity. And this, this really stopped me. I had to listen to this a couple of times. So you talked about needing to create a level of authenticity that was so modern that any graphic designer wouldn't know it's modern. 
I think that's one of the, the, the problems. If you only recreate something that already existed, it looks dated and it looks and you and when you look back when you go like you know, there's always this haphazard quality that sometimes it would be not polished enough for a client today because a lot of you know, times I mean you know, especially like French restaurants they are family business so like the grandfather like you know, bought the place and then the, his son took the place over and decided to change some little things and the grandkid came and changed a little bit <laughs> so in a sense it's like you know, this melange of the history so you are faking not only a specific time in place but you're also recreating all this history so in a sense it's difficult because you do want to do something that belongs to a period but also you don't want to become so part of that period that it becomes old immediately so in a sense it has to have some is how i see that specific point in time otherwise uh, it just can xerox something that existed and printed so in a sense you have what is you know, I mean, I love the swell rules. So let's put swell rules like you know, all over. I mean, those kind of little things that, uh, I mean, I love that uh, in every Victorian advertisement, you have to have at least 20 different typefaces in <laughs> one page. I love that. I love that. I mean, the thing goes, the idea, goes against the idea of modernity. So let's use 20 wonderful typefaces. Somewhere Massimo Vignelli is crying. <laughs> So in in the same conversation that you had with Matteo, you also talked about believing that one of the roles of graphic design is to make an audience feel intelligent. I think it's very important. So how do you go about doing that? I think one of the main things is humor. I think if you have something that has humor, the audience laughs with you. And then so they feel intelligent. They feel um, like they get smart. it somehow? Yeah, really smart. And then like you know, they appreciate it. I think that's one of the important, how humor is so important to work. Because also life is hard. Like let's give a break to you know, general public. Like you know, make life a little easier, a little you know, gentler and happier by just this little witty thing that you can create. Yeah, I think it's about the wit Yeah, as much as it is about the humor. On the park, we did, I mean, it's it's this beautiful French restaurant right in front of Rittenhouse Square in in Philadelphia. I don't know, I think it was a laundry, and then they discarded everything, and they make this French bistro from 1890. And so we decided, like, with the name park, um, we decided, like, let's do a little silhouette of animals that would be in the park, you know, working in the kitchen. So you have, like, you know, a little pigeon as the waiter. You had, like, you know, the buzz, the the maitre d' was a dog. We had a bunch of animals, and each animal has a different function in the restaurant. And we have one of them that was this little squirrel that was the bartender, was Luke. And then so we like you know, we created like you know, a little uh, so it was just little things that you know it was fun to do and like you know, and people relate to it and they're fun. This talk about animals reminds me of one of the anecdotes that you have written about, wherein you describe the parts of an elephant to branding. And how you see them in a very similar fashion. And I want to share that with you and our listeners. You said, you know the story of the blind man and the elephant. The first held the tail, the second the feet, the third the torso, the fourth the trunk. 
each saw something different. It's the same with your business. You know all the parts and you want to emphasize your best features. We can see the parts, the whole, and the spirit behind it. Great design and great typography can unify all of your best assets into its proper shape to create your brand. And my question to you, Roberto, is how? How does great design and typography unify all of your best assets into its proper shape to create your brand? I think one of the things first is, again, the idea of being a foreigner. I mean, you are in a different environment and, you know, you have this client who are really in the thick of trying, like, you know, to sell things. Then, I mean, the, the function of designer is to you know, work with the client to understand what the job is and help place that into the context of the market and also to try like to know learn with your client the process of like you know what's out there that is exactly like you how do you differentiate yourself from these people what is your story that's different from everyone else so you help to collect all these different informations and create like you know something you know, a narrative that is so that's good. how you interpret it yes that's really really interesting I'm very curious about your books. You have three books. In 2000, you created an alphabet book for your daughter titled Bembo's Zoo, your daughter Genevieve's first Christmas, I believe. And you called it Bembo's Zoo because you used the font Bembo to create 26 different animals, one for each letter of the alphabet. So for the letter A, for example, the letters that make up the word antelope are manipulated to form the creature's outline. And you did the same thing for bison and for crab all the way through to unicorn, yak, and zebra. So what is it about the letter forms of the alphabet that intrigue you so much that you want to actually create characters out of characters? I think the whole story started uh, um, my wife is a wasp, and like, <laughs> and uh, um, I love her, and I love you know her family. And every Christmas we had not that much food, a lot of drink, um, very waspy. Yeah, and you know we were supposed to give gifts to the kids, but between the adults we have to make things. We have like you know, to do everything has to be handmade. That's wonderful. Yeah, the and prob- very old fashioned. Yeah, exactly. The problem <laughs> is I'm the only me and my wife are the only ones who had exacto knives, glue guns and everything you know and crafty things or a computer. Most of the things you know I would get I mean I, for our while we had at our home we had this birdhouse that we called the birdhouse of Dr. Caligari because <laughs> not one wall met it was like an exp- German expressionist birdhouse. <laughs> so it, it was things that like you know, that would live in our house for a month and then it would be trashed out. So I decided to you know let's do if I have to do a present, let's try like to do this an alphabet book because my my daughter I was you know uh, she was two and she uh, I was trying like you know, to teach her Portuguese as well besides English. So I was trying like to find an alphabet book that I could use both for Portuguese and English. So. For instance, normally when you have an alphabet book in English, A is always for alligator. But in Portuguese, you know, the word alligator is jacaré, starts with J. So in a sense, like, you know, I couldn't use the same. So I decided, well, let's make, I would make my own book for her. And since I'm not an illustrator, I decided, well, and I'm a craft designer, I said, like, let's use you know, the letter forms because she would recognize the letter forms and then she would see how combining those letter forms you can create the word. 
And so I did like you know, that, and uh, I showed to a friend of mine who had uh, was an editor-in-chief for a publishing house, and then he liked the idea, and so uh, you know, the book got published. What made you decide to Be- use Bimbo? Because uh, the typeface, it looks really beautiful in large size and small size. So in a sense, you need a typeface that was you know, classic letter form, but yet, like, you know, that even though uh, in terms of, of size, would uh, they, they would look beautifully displayed. So you followed this up with your most recent book, a remarkable effort titled Men of Letters and People of Substance, which is a gallery of famous portraits entirely created by letters and objects. And in the introduction, Francine Prose described this book as a book that makes the alphabet sing and proof of how much can be accomplished with language. And it's true, Roberto, it's it's so true. You have the ability to express emotion in a cue, or as you put it, the mane of Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain's mustache have their equivalent shapes respectively in the characters D of Avalon and W in Koshin. How did you discover that? <laughs> I mean, how did you find out that Mark Twain's mustache has an equivalent shape in the character of D in the typeface Avalon? I, I think that you know when when Bimbozo was going to press, they asked me like for uh, a photo to put on the flap of the book, and I decided that like no, I, I mean, I hate. Any photo of me because I'm always fatter and bolder than I thought I don't know that I I hear you. I hear you. So um, so I decided well let's do instead of like you no know, photo. I mean the only photo that I had that I was thinking to send to the publisher was a six month picture of a baby since it was a bit in our children's uh, oh, book. Oh, I get it. But they decided, well, if I can do this with the animals, let's see if I can do a portrait of myself only using the letters of my name. So it started like you not know, playing with the, you know, the letters. And then, you know, one thing led to another. Well, let's see we can, if we can do that. I mean, you can start pushing like to see how it works. And I think one of the things that I liked about that was also because I was trying like to combine the idea. I mean, you have, you amass this great uh, library of fonts when you work and you, you know you love these fonts and you have you don't have a project like to work with all these fonts so i decided like well let's see if i can like you know, do something with that so it was a way of like you know, searching a little bit the time period of the specific author and then you know, trying to find a font that like that matches you know that for instance you know Marcel Proust I mean you use like you know, I use Oriol that's like this typeface from like, from the turn of the century so it was beautiful and it matches like somehow you could match the figure with the typeface and sometimes with portraits sometimes also you find something that defines the the idea of a caricature you find like you know, one specific strong Gesture. element that like and that may, gives the character the, the portrait like you know, its personality and then sometimes you find a typeface that has that little element that you know, fits perfectly as into a nose or into a mane or into a moustache. Or a so woman's legs. <laughs> There's a, a marvelous exercise that you have on the Type Directors Club website about how to make love to your type, I believe is the title. Yes. And you see all sorts of very risque examples of how type follows the shape of the human anatomy. Well, the thing is also I, I always forget uh, about the you know, specific elements of the typeface. I mean, 
mean, how, I mean, what is this thing that sticks up? Is it a sender? Oh, the thing that sticks down, the sender, what is the, the bowl. little, the bow or the little, <laughs> the exactly. So in a sense, they are all names that relate to human body. So that we, we were doing something like we wanted to do a little uh, printed object that would serve as something you know, for the members like to have as an inspiration piece, but also like to promote the Type Directors Club. So they offered me if I wanted to do something, and I said, oh, yes, you know, I always had this idea, so let's you know, try that. And after that, we had like so many other, you know, Gail Anderson uh, did a, a wonderful piece on the Santerias, and Jessica Hish did a little poster, and uh, Will Steele did a little series of postcards. We always try to see to do some little printed object that like can serve as an inspiration, serve as an interesting piece for our members. I read an interview with you wherein you stated a letter is much more than a representation of a symbol. A letter depicts a time period, a certain mood, and perhaps the soul of the artist. And I'm wondering how you go about constructing that soul. I think is the idea of sen- your sensibility, your personality. So in a sense, it's, it's a, a collection of all these moments in time where you find things that you like or that reflect your sensibility or that you act upon and you create pieces of design. I think your artwork in the end, you know, your portfolio becomes like you know, your, uh, your face, your soul, your, you know, your spirit. Um, I think it's one of the strangest things that I've ever seen was some time ago, a friend of mine had a friend who died, and he was not a religious person. His family was in the Midwest, and the the guy was an interior designer. And so they had a little get-together of all his clients and his families in the house that that he uh, designed. And there was champagne and people talking about him. And in, in the coffee table... There was his portfolio. For me, it was the strangest thing to know to see. To know, I mean, this is a little bit life in New York City. You are so much the work that you do that the portfolio was his presence, was his to know lifetime achievement. So it was like you know, quite beautiful, like the strange to know. I mean, normally you are accustomed like to see you know in Catholic churches or like, <laughs> the, the, right. but now he's in New York. I mean, he's like you know, in the time that you are secular. So there was like you know, that portfolio that represented him, and it was his soul. Um, but I think also the most imp- one of the most important things in terms of graphic design. I think that's the only thing that is specific to graphic design is typography. Everything else you borrow from the other arts. You borrow, like, you know, the images from the photography, from painting. from. But the only thing that is specific material for uh, graphic design is typography. So you have to know type and you have to, to, know, to learn the history of type and you have, like, to be willing to play with type. Because I think that the, the more that you can, the more expressive you become and the more, you know, the better designer you become. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Debbie. To learn more about Roberto Divic Dicomtish, visit divic.com. That's Vic spelled V-I-C-Q. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.